beginning i suppose really i mean as far as i remember i had started playing guitar i was playing for maybe six seven maybe eight months something like that and i was really into my dad's music initially and whatever i was hearing on the radio around that time because i was 12. prior to that i really only heard what my dad was listening to or working on at home we didn't listen to the radio. I wasn't around people that were playing, let's call it popular music. It was just whatever was on at, at home. So I, at 12 years old, I started to hear other music other than my dad's music. I always I liked started. my dad's guitar playing. I liked watching him play guitar. I liked the look of the instruments. And in particular, I loved the SG when my dad was playing the SG because it reminded me of Batman. It has those horns, you know? Uh, and so I started playing guitar and I was hearing music for the first time that was not my dad's music because I, I started to have friends that were listening to music and they were listening to the radio and what was popular on the radio at the time was Ozzy Osbourne who had Randy Rhodes playing with him at that time and Van Halen and The Who and ACDC and you know I started hearing the Beatles and, and all these other things but prior to that I really only heard what my dad was working on at home or what he might have been listening to from his record collection and that was pretty varied I mean it was a lot of classical musicians or folk music sometimes there were rock records in there I remember hearing Black Sabbath and Jimi Hendrix and uh, Queen from my dad's record collection. Uh, so I was starting to hear things that were interesting to me, but I really didn't know that much about music. I just liked that it seemed like something really creative and fun and interesting, and it was cool to watch and listen to. So when I started to really get into playing guitar, uh, I needed a little bit of a, a push to to figure out how to do what I wanted to do. And my dad set up a few lessons for me with his guitar player at the time, who was Steve Vai. And he, Steve was about, I think, 20 years old at that time, maybe 21. And uh, he sat down and he, and he had this notebook that he made where he wrote down some exercises. And if you don't play guitar, there's ways that you can learn to play guitar without reading music. You can sort of look at neck diagrams and you can count where the frets are and go, oh, okay, put a dot here and a dot here and dot here. And visually you can see where you can put your fingers. So yeah. I never learned to read music. I, I still can't. I, I, can, I can read it just barely, but it's so much faster for me to just listen to something and learn it by ear. So back in the day, uh, this notebook was the thing that showed me how to navigate the neck and figure out some stuff. But as Steve likes to say, when I first took my first lesson, 
he was really petrified to go back and talk to my dad because he thought, oh, there's no way this kid's going to be able to play. He can't even make the connection from his right hand to his left hand and, and stuff is just not working out all that well. But then a week later, there was drastic improvement and a week after that, even more. So it was the kind of thing where I put in a lot of time. I got really excited about it and I would start playing initially several hours a day and then it became eight or 10 or 12 hours a day because I was yeah. just obsessed with trying to learn stuff. And at that point, I really got focused on the music of Van Halen because there was something about the guitar, the guitar sound and what he was playing. It was so focused on the guitar, but it was also in a way, it, it reminded me of my dad's music, not because it sounded similar, but because it had this innovation to it. There was something about it, an energy, a sound that was unique that really mm -hmm. stood out. And it made me really want to learn what was going on with that. So I did my best to just kind of sit there and pick out little bits and pieces. But having only played for six or seven or eight months, I wasn't learning a lot of stuff all that easily because at that time there was no visual reference. Now you can go on YouTube and you can see a video of how somebody plays something. And chances are it's gonna be fairly accurate to the way somebody might go ahead and, and play that. But on the guitar, again, if, if you've never played the guitar, what you have is multiple areas where you can play the same note. And it will sound differently in all these different places. You can have an open string or you can put your finger on a fret and make the same note and it can be played in all these different places. So trying to figure out how somebody plays something and make it so that your hands are in the right place and that you get the right feel and the, and the um, you know, the execution of the idea, that really was something that you had to experiment with. You had to listen to records, move the, uh, move the needle back or rewind the tape or all these things. So it was hours of tedious little things and then experimenting, trying to find where those notes were. And that's what I was doing. But one day out of nowhere, we got a call to our house that there was a guy purporting to be Edward Van Halen. So this to me was incredible because I was listening to so much Van Halen and I thought, how could this be? I mean, this is like a magic trick. If he, if he actually, if this guy actually is Eddie Van Halen, you know, what are the chances that, that this would happen, you know? And uh, my dad ended up getting on the phone with him and about 15 or 20 minutes later, he was at the house and he brought a guitar with him and I was able to see him play up close and see him play things like Eruption, the intro to Mean Street and all these other crazy things that I had been trying to imagine how he was doing it, but there it was. So I was laser focused on being able to see exactly how he played some of these things. And that made a huge difference in my progression as a guitar player pretty much overnight because I was able to see it and see, okay, how challenging is it for him? How was how he going for these things? And for him, it was really easy. Obviously over the years, I learned how to do it and I was able to get close to playing things the way that, that Edward did and get close to the sound and the feel and all those things. But it was really a lifetime's worth of inspiration 
to keep following that path along with all the other musical interests that I've had. But, but that was a really crazy way to start. It wasn't start. just about learning the notes. It was about trying to figure out how to get the sound and all the textures. So my whole life, that's been my approach is to really kind of focus in on something really specific so that I could do what I was hearing um, in my head. With the exposure, your dad didn't push music on you guys, though, I don't believe, right? It was just, it was in the well, house he, and he supported he didn't it. say, okay, hey, everybody, here's a great idea. You should become musicians. You know, he didn't right. do anything like that. Right. If we showed some sort of interest, he might give us some areas to discover some things or learn about stuff. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him in the studio. And even when he was on tour, as I got older, I went on tour a few times and played with him in different locations. But it was always really fascinating to me to watch him work and, and see how he came up with ideas and how fast he was able to do that stuff and how easily he could communicate his ideas to everyone else specifically because he could write it on the page and give it to them and they were expected to be able to read it and play it, even if it was hard as hell. So he found people that could do that and that was a big challenge because it's not easy to keep a band together even when it's just four guys that grew up together. Right. Uh, so off and on, there would be a revolving door of people in and out of the band that were people that had the requisite skills to be able to, to learn to, to sight read this stuff or play it. But the challenge always is, do those people have an attitude that's easy to get along with right. during recording sessions or on a tour bus or backstage? And that's usually where things always fall apart. You might have people that have really good musical skill, but socially, they're not people that you want to spend time with. Dad didn't specifically say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to do all this stuff. If I had really specific questions, he would answer them for me, but there was never a time where he, he did the, okay, I'm going to take you under my wing and let's do it like this. It wasn't like, okay, I make shoes and I'm going to show you how to do it. You know, yeah. that I had the chance to record the songs to begin with. It was just one day my dad said, Hey, would you like to record a song or two? And I said, sure, that'd be great. I had a little band together with my friends in school. We were all 12. And, uh, you know, we, we all had just started playing. So we, we weren't very skilled at our instruments, but we were excited about the idea that, oh yeah, cool, we can record something. But the, the icing on the cake there was that somehow or another, my dad had arranged it so that Edward Van Halen was going to produce these songs. And Don Landy, who had engineered, recorded all of the Van Halen records, mm -hmm. was the engineer for the sessions. So here we are, 12 years old, and we have no idea uh, how to do anything in the studio. And Edward Van Halen is trying to talk to us, but he's, he's not knowing how he should give us guidance because if we're not really playing that well, he tried his right. best you know, to, to not be negative and say, gosh, you guys are pretty terrible. There's nothing I can do here. 
he helped get us in the spirit of things, but there, there was a change that needed to be made where the drummer that was playing with us at the time just wasn't able to, to play well enough in the studio. So we did end up getting a different drummer to play. And the drummer that ended up playing was the younger brother of Warren Cucurulo, who had once been in my dad's band, who then ended up in Missing Persons and, and then Duran Duran. Duran, yep. Yeah, so uh, his brother was several years older than us. I think he was 18 at the time and we we're all 12. Um, so that helped get the project moving and the playing sounded a, a little stronger. But the keyboard player, Greg Kirsten, he's gone on to work with lots of different famous musicians as a producer and a songwriter. He's done cover records where he's performed various versions of Van Halen music that have no guitar. It's all keyboards or other instruments playing Van Halen stuff. So it's interesting to hear Van Halen presented in that way with absolutely no guitar. To bet you how Eddie thinks sometimes, or Eddie, Eddie used to think too sometimes, because I know he was big on doing a lot of his music in keyboard. Well, he definitely wrote some songs on piano, even songs that you wouldn't think were done on, or written on piano or keyboards first. I learned only recently that one of my favorite Van Halen songs, which is super guitar, it's like a, it's perfectly made to be played on guitar, a song called Unchained. Yep. That one, when you play it, when you learn to play it on guitar, it's so guitaristic. Mm -hmm. You can't imagine that it would have ever been written on any other instrument, but yet it was written on piano. So that's one of those things that blew my mind where that song, you would have been able to swear that there's no way that was written on anything other than the guitar, but, you know, piano. <laughs> so anyway, we were, we were in the studio and none of us had ever learned how to do anything with recording or overdubbing or anything like that. So the band, we, we knew the songs just well enough to get through and play them. And we didn't have any punch-ins where we had to, as a whole band, have to try to punch in in the middle of a performance, you know, play along and then just jump in where that was happening. but when it came to overdubs, that's something that I did have to do. And Edward had to teach me what that process was, where you, you listen to the part right before you want to punch in and you play along and then they punch in, get the new part and then punch out. And so it inserts the new bit that you want to do. But if you're not playing along, it won't have a seamless transition. And so that was tricky because I could barely play at the time anyway. So playing along with what I had already just played wasn't the easiest thing, but that was uh, something when I was doing the solo and, and other stuff, I would punch in little parts here or there. So the whole process was a real learning experience because I was working with my favorite guitarist in the world and yeah. he's teaching me about how to punch in and all these other, and how to get the guitar sound to begin with. You know, he set up the mic with Don Landy and tested everything. And he had brought in the Frankenstrat, the red and white striped guitar. Mm -hmm. And he's like, here, try this one. 
And it ended up that my guitar ended up sounding better for the part than his guitar. So I didn't end up playing the Frankenstrat, uh, but that was there as an option. So it was, uh, it was just kind of a crazy thing to, to be seeing that guitar. And I remember very vividly, uh, it was not too long before that, that he had taken a quarter and he had uh, drilled a screw through it to the body so that it could level out the tremolo bridge. So it was like a recent addition to the guitar at that point. I just remember thinking, oh, that's so cool. He just put a screw through a quarter and it's sitting on the, on the guitar. It's bolted on. <laughs> you know, all yeah, kinds of things that were not with precision. You know, he, he just like chiseled things by hand and all kinds of stuff. We were recording My Mother's a Space Cadet. The, the other things that were interesting that happened, there was a point where Don Landy had talked to my mom because he was trying to help get everybody to to really feel like there was the the right mood in the studio and so he talked to ed they had talked to my mom and ed came in he said okay everybody it's time for a milk and cookie break which in the the history of rock and roll it's usually not what happens when you take a break in the studio you know, it's like milk and cookie break is pretty far down the list of things most musicians do when they take a break from the studio. So this was kind of um, a very wholesome, uh, you know, break that was taken in, in the studio. But it was kind of funny because, you know, Ed was trying to figure out how do I relate to these kids? What do I, what do I say? And this was just a funny thing for him to come in and say, all right, Let's take a milk and cookie break. I don't have total vivid memories of all the things. So I don't know if it was a frustrating experience for Ed and Don because we couldn't have been that good. We sound good as, as the end result, but you know, we'd only been playing for nine months at the most at that time. Uh, but I do remember there were some fun things that we did at the very end of Space Cadet there uh, during the fade out. It's kind of like right after the solo, we had these toy ray guns that had these laser sounds and we were using mm -hmm. them in front of the microphone and there was a little knob that you could turn and it would change the sound effects. And at one point I had turned the knob and the noise, it synchronized with the snare fill. So it's like, and the, the, the laser just went right with the drum fill. It was like totally not planned, but it, it ended up being perfectly in time. And so that's this one thing that happens on the record that's completely by accident. But I remember in that moment thinking, how cool is that, that this little thing happen and it would probably never ever happen again, but it was captured. And I remember thinking, I've seen this happen when my dad's been recording where something amazing will happen and people will start laughing and you'll have captured that. And then the spirit of that is in the recording. And I always loved that because it's, if you, if you didn't have the ability to see you would still feel everything about the music because you'd be hearing it and you'd know 
you feel like you're right there in that moment where something happens spontaneously. Uh, and that kind of feeling is so exciting, which was the single. And it was a tune that really, it came from, there were so many times when we were late to school growing up, my mom would be sitting and reading a magazine or something where like, we have to go, we're late. And she would just keep reading or she would get up and she would put stuff in the dishwasher. We're like, we have to go to school. And we were late a lot because she just seemed to be disconnected to what was happening. So we started calling her a space cadet. And so the song had its connection to that idea, although the lyrics don't reflect that, except for there's one line about, um, I don't remember the lyrics, but there's one line about her reading her magazine. So that was very specific to that moment. But we had a, an opportunity to record a second song, which was a ridiculous song called Crunchy Water. So when you're 12 and you're thinking, well, I got to write another song, uh, what should it be called? Uh, Crunchy Water. Okay, cool. Let's do it. You know, and it was just, you write the lyrics in about 8.4 seconds and it was just kind of a goofy song. And I don't even remember much about the process because it went so fast. We just put that one together really quickly. That one doesn't have a guitar solo on it, but the first song, My Mother's a Space Cadet, has a guitar solo that even Edward at the time when he was talking about it, he was saying that I sounded a lot like him even at that time when I was only playing for nine months. So the solo, if you listen to that, it's it's got quite a Van Halen kind of feel to it. But Edward also does play a couple of parts on the record. He plays the slide guitar intro. Okay. And he plays um, a little melody at the end after after I play the solo. just going to be Warren Demartini on that track and that's a tune that I had where at one time I remember it was probably like 1989 or 1990 maybe Warren was living in this apartment in Los Angeles uh this place that was called I think it was called the Granville I guess his house was under construction or something. So he was living in this apartment and I went over there and we had made a little demo on a four track, I think it was that he had. And the riff and the whole song Helpless was the tune that I brought over there. And he had played a solo on that and he played so well on that song when I actually did the recording in the studio. I said, you gotta come and play a solo like the one you did on this little demo. So that was what we set out to do. But when I was recording Staying Alive, I had a lot of different guest guitar players that were on that song and Warren mm -hmm. played on that song as well, as did Zach Wild. But Zach being uh, Zach, he was at the studio and he's like, what else can I play on? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, and so we just opened up some tracks on Helpless. 
and we let him play on that, which he sounded great on. But yeah. it was during the same time of as Warren solo, so we had to cut the part and duplicate it so that we could have Zach play and have Warren play. So that section was never originally in the song to be uh, a doubled solo. We just you had to at that time use razor blade edit and take that part and then extend it. So oh. that's what uh, exists for that. <laughs> To it. I was way into baseball um, at that time. And I used to watch all the games that were on TV. Like I used to love it when there were day games on WGN, the Chicago station, because they would play the daytime Cub games from Wrigley Field. And mm -hmm. I would just love to see all that, you know, come home from school, or even if I was home from school because I was sick or something, I'd be TV would be like, oh, you get to watch. I Dream of Jeannie, yep. Gomer Pyle, the Brady Bunch, and a bunch of other things, and then baseball. So I was like, this is the best, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that focus has always been carried over clearly in your guitar, your guitar playing there and your music, so. Yeah. You center focused, one mind. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, you know, if, if I got into something, I like to learn what it was about and then try to try to figure out how I could do that, but then also what it could do under my own uh, circumstances. Like how, if I wanted to change something or use that as an influence, where was it gonna go from there? And that's always been an interesting thing to, to try to work out in my own guitar playing. Uh, it I does mean, feel like you, you do that. The other going... day, I picked up the guitar for the first time in months and I played something and it was this really simple thing. And I realized I had never ever tried it before. And I was like, how is it that I've never tried playing this after all these years? And it, it was just, I, every so often, I'll have one of those moments where I'll, I'll just realize that I've, you know, after all these years of playing things, there will be something new that happens but this was something that was so simple and so specifically simple that I was like, why have I never done this before? And I would have to get a guitar, you know, which I could do. I could just grab one right now and show you what it is. Because okay. it's, yeah, I'll, I'll just do it. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to play, you know, like a bent note, like something like this. I'm going from this note and I'm holding this note at the same time. So, but I would be bending. So that I had done before, but what I hadn't done before was to start with this note here and then not start here, but start here and bend from here. Which is different than... So I was just doing this half step bend. I like I that. Thinking, Wait a minute, there's a few of those that I could do in other spots like... And then I was like, why haven't I done that before? I could get some cool things out of that. I can make the guitar sound super drunk, you know? And it's, uh, it's just little things like that that then start a whole new idea for what could be possible for other things, you know? And then I, I ended up playing guitar for about 15 or 20 minutes looking for all these places where I could do half-step bends and have a, another note that stayed um, 
stable while the other one was being bent. Story in Steve Lukather's book where Steve auditioned for my dad when he was real yeah. young, maybe 19 or so. And one of the things he was asked to play was the opening lick to San Bernardino, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily the hardest thing to play, but it's a little quirky. So if you aren't paying attention, you could play it wrong. And I think he was nervous, so he wasn't playing it correctly, and then he wasn't remembering it. So my dad, as he tells it in the book, made an example of him and said, you have no retention, and basically excused him from the audition. So he didn't feel so good about what had happened there, but he used that as a learning experience to, to make sure that he was as prepared as he possibly could be for any and all other musical encounters so that that kind of situation wouldn't happen again. In the middle 70s, my dad's band was a coveted seat to get. So mm -hmm. there used to be people that would try to audition just so that they could have it on their resume. And so they mm -hmm. might try to get in there and then not stay for very long. So that's a, a tricky place for my dad because it's so difficult to rehearse a band and then you have to replace somebody. Now the balance of everything's off. And so he ran into that a few times with different kinds of people. But there was one particular time where I saw this drummer audition and he was really just an imbecile. This guy pretended that he could read music, but clearly he couldn't. So the music was put in front of him, the black page, which is a very difficult piece oh. of music of my dad's. And it's, it's a drum solo originally. So he was supposed to be able to sight read this drum solo. And so it's put in front of him and he sits down and the cymbals are in front of him and he starts tickling the cymbals and doing this kind of thing like this. <laughs> and he's thinking that that's impressive or that somehow that would be viewed as him playing the music that's in front of him. So after about 25 seconds of this, my dad was just looking at him like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll play it. So he adjusts the paper and he looks at it again. And, and then he starts going, doing the same thing. And my dad was like, you're out of here. It was just, <laughs> who would do that? Yeah, so uh, on the record, I don't remember how many people are credited um, in a way that is erroneous. I wrote but a couple I, down, so we'll hit a few. <laughs> yeah, so in the liner notes, I just thought if anybody was reading along, it would be funny for them to imagine certain people doing certain things. So having Mickey Rooney play bass on a song seemed like a pretty funny, preposterous idea. Oh, he yeah. didn't, in fact, play on the song, but I gave him credit for it anyway. <laughs> you know, so stuff like that <laughs> happened in the liner notes on the record. I think, I think Clint Eastwood's uh, credited as doing something somewhere yeah. in there. On this one, though, actually, so did it to the female voice of the woman was Michael J. Fox he put on there? Yeah, well, that clearly wasn't I, the case. I, yeah. Well, clearly <laughs> the time period is really funny. You actually have Josh now for drums, but you also have John Stamos. Now, he does play <laughs> drums. He does. Yeah. And he was special. Now, is it a joke because he was the drummer for the Beach Boys at the time? 
I think it was just, you know, these kinds of random things to make somebody think, is it possible? Could that? That is. That place? was possible back then, though. Yeah. So it it walks the fine line. But no, he did not play drums on it. It was just Josh. But it's the kind of thing where if somebody was really taking all those things seriously, it could have given them that much more enjoyment for the record. Or it could have given them pause to think, I don't know, what, what's going on here? So it was just kind of a fun way to be a little goofy with uh, some of the credits. Oh, I was the credit, even if they didn't have anything to do with it. Well, and I read it before. I was like, you know, I saw Mickey Rooney. I'm like, that, no, that can't be it. But then when I saw John Stamos, I'm like, I'm thinking back at the time, like 91, I think he did the Beach Boys at Kokomo and he was playing drums and he, yep. he was pretty big. Uncle Jesse doing a lot of stuff. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that could have happened. And, and, you know, they told you, then there's the, the Zappa factor where you're like, you know, you got to throw everything in with a grain of salt there, you know? Yeah. It could have happened. So Maybe one day I will get him to play drums. <laughs> But after harmonies, this was funny. You put down MC Hammer and Paula Abdul, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, yeah. But now, well, if you listen really hard, you know, you might be able to pick them out. <laughs> I could hear his pants shuffling for MC Hammer, yeah. but that's about it. But you did put background vocals. You put your brother and then you put um, Nuno, of course, but they put Clint Eastwood. But there's a little more different. There's something different about the Clint Eastwood you're going to tell me about. Right. Well, Clint Eastwood, he did not sing on that one. But uh, it would have been hilarious if he was. Would have stuck out. If you just imagine, like, you know, Nuno and me and uh, Clint Eastwood, and we all got one headphone on, and we're just, you know, (laughs) singing along to uh, this this version of this Beatles tune. But the thing about Clint Eastwood is, I used to play a fair amount of golf, and I once was playing in a golf tournament, which happened to be on the island of Lanai in, in Hawaii, you know, like mm-hmm. the smaller island. And at the hotel where the golf course was, there was this thing that was set up for guests of the hotel to have an evening to hear a discussion, a roundtable discussion with a few of the guests that were playing in this golf tournament. And so it ended up being me and Clint Eastwood and a guy who was a huge movie producer at the time named David Wolper. David Wolper made the, well, he did so many things. He did uh, Roots and he did, uh, he produced the Olympics in in 1984 or, or, or somewhere thereabouts. I guess that was the time when it was uh, but he did one of my favorite movies of all time, which was uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, that uh, uh, the original version. Mm-hmm. So I got it. Uh, so the thing about him was I was playing it, the golf tournament was kind of like a team event. You, you would play with certain people and you'd uh, so I was on David Wolper's team. But the thing about David was he liked that I could hit the ball far because when you work as a team, it's like, okay, you play from the best ball. So oh. you drive like wherever, whoever hit the furthest or best shot, everybody then gets to hit the next shot from there. So he liked to be on the team with me because I was hitting the ball far and it was in the fairway. So he didn't know how to say my name for the first several days of, of like knowing him. <laughs> So he would say, 
I really, I want to get that guy tweezers on my team. (laughs) He called me tweezers. So I think I even ended up being called tweezers by him that night at that round table discussion with Clint Eastwood. So it was just this (laughs) really strange experience, but here I am have nothing to do. These guys are all big time movie guys, tons of movie stories. And the majority of everybody in that room would have known whatever they had been up to and have no clue what I was up to at all or could care, you know, couldn't care less. But anyway, I I did get called upon to answer a few questions. And I did have a little back and forth conversation with both of those guys. But it was definitely a surreal moment for me to be part of a panel discussion with, you know, I mean, if you saw it on paper, it just looks ridiculous. David I'm Wolf trying to visualize it. and Dweezil Zappa. Yeah. And <laughs> then, then it was just so incongruous because we were there because of golf, you know? So I, I, another thing, it may, maybe it would have made more sense be, for leisurely things for people in the movie industry. But right, at right. that time, it wasn't really that, well-known as part of a rock and roll tradition. And this again is kind of ahead of its time, but it's it's like a Beavis and Butthead kind of thing where it's two metal guitar players talking about metal guitar and being incredibly stupid about everything having to do with music. And so, it's just me and Nuno. And it's I'm laughing, thinking about some of the lines. <laughs> yeah, and I'm talking in a terrible Boston accent. And so we, it starts off with a, a phone call and it's like, hello? Hey, dude, dude, who's this? Like, he doesn't know who it is. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then he's like, dude, you want to come over and jam, dude? Yeah, dude. And then you hear the airplane crash into something and falling down the steps and there's a cow and all that stuff. And then the song starts. So it's just all that stuff, the the sound design, just to make it as stupid as possible. And then we start talking about all these different guitar players like Jeff Beck and Joe Satriani and Eddie Van Halen and Joe Perry. It's like, dude, dude, I saw Joe Perry at a carnival, dude. You know, and it's like, dude, dude looks like a late, no dude, don't say that dude. So like, no dude, don't say that dude was a thing that sort of ended each verse. We would say something and then we get to the point where it was something that was, you shouldn't say that. And then you had to bring it back in. And that came from this guy that was um, Nudo's guitar tech at that time. He, he had this uh, hilarious personality and he wanted to uh, he was always super helpful, but he would he would offer up whatever he had, even to the point of being ridiculous. Like he walked in one day and he was eating a cherry popsicle. He's like, dude, dude, you want some? Like, no, dude. You know, it's like, it's so it was it's stuff like that where we would just take these these isms that were from all around. And it was, that's just how the song became what it was. And the, the part at the end, where we're playing the Pentecostal scale. Yeah. <laughs> Both, you know, Nuno and I play this lick at the end and we did it live. Uh, we both played this lick at the same time. And it's 
it's a big stretch. It's it's three frets apart, three notes per string, three frets apart, and we play this lick. It goes up, ascending, and then descending. But we played it just live as a single take, and really? it was one of these things where it's if you are a fan of Van Halen, you you learn a certain kind of position, a stretch that he would do, and this is just a thing that was a total Van Halen pattern, but we put it in uh, diminished harmony. So it sounds like the devil, but we played it live. That last part, when you hear it, uh, if you listen back to it, that thing where we're playing in harmony, we just did that as a single overdub where we both played together. I remember Alan Holdsworth had come to the house around that time too. And he saw me practicing the little opening to that. And he's like, oh, that's cool that you're using more than one finger to, to do those things. And he showed me some stuff, which of course his hands, he could stretch way further than I could. And I was like, wow, I can't even make that hey, Can happen. your hands even stretch that way now? <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it was cool. And over the years, I would sometimes get a chance to stay in touch with him. And he eventually ended up playing live on stage with us during a few shows on the Zappa, cool Play Zappa tour. And one of the funniest things was that we played at the House of Blues in Anaheim and it was on Valentine's Day. Now, date night for Zappa fans, very few women like to go to a Zappa style show. You know, so this is like, it's mostly guys out there in the audience but you know on valentine's day a couple of guys turned it into date night and some of the women came along to the the show to see if they could enjoy any of what was on offer but one of the things that we did to make it more valentine's day friendly was there was that movie that was popular years earlier which was um patrick swayze and jennifer gray the dirty dancing movie and there was that song I've had the time of my life, which mm -hmm. was the big, huge hit from that. So we learned that song. And then we had Alan Holsworth play a guitar solo on it. So the juxtaposition of that song, which is so commercial and so known for being what it was, you know, a movie theme and all that stuff. Yeah. And then you throw this completely ridiculous atonal guitar solo on it to essentially ruin the song but in the best possible way that was my contribution to valentine's day that evening was to be able to get alan holdsworth to play a guitar solo because he disregarded the the harmony of that song and just did what he did you know and it was hilarious because i imagined like what if what if he played on the original what if that song was that way and and it had this three minute Alan Holdsworth guitar solo in the middle of it, and it was still a hit. Oh, that would have been the the funniest, weirdest thing to it happen. It is the best. I just the setup for that, like the one night they finally go, they're gonna go there, then they probably get excited. They hear the song, and then they hear the solo, and they just <laughs> totally don't get it. So it's like a chained was written on the piano. That's one of the most guitaristic guitar pattern 
kind of guitar riff songs, yet it wasn't yeah. written on the guitar. So that was fascinating to me that he wrote it on the piano and then ended up putting it on the guitar. Uh, so there's a few things like that, that over time, you know, uh, you change your perspective of, of the feeling that you have uh, for the song if you find out new information. I guess another thing that was funny about that episode to me was uh, as a kid, when I heard the solo, the outro solo to um, uh, One Foot Out the Door, that the first note of the solo always sounded like Godzilla to me. So I finally was able to reference Godzilla and the solo and put them yep. side by side and found out that indeed it's the same exact opening note. And there's a certain kind of character to the way that the, the, two, the notes have this converging set of harmonics and it's, the, it's almost the same character as what happens with Godzilla's voice. So it's, it's funny to me that it always sounded like Godzilla, but I didn't know how close it actually was. And it's the, the same pitch. with blues where we were talking about this there's some pretty funny stuff as, as, uh, we're talking about this one thing that happens in one of the songs and i think it's take your whiskey home but there's a um a little weird sound effect that just happens on the right side and i can't remember how we were describing it in the episode it was sort of like the the equivalent of if you had a spinning bike wheel and you put something in the spokes and it made this weird little stutter sound, there's something that happens similar to that at one point, and I don't know why. And it just, you know, if you listen in headphones, it sticks out and there's that one weird little sound and I don't know what it is. I, I only discovered it when I was editing the episode because I was listening to the song and I kept listening at one point uh, because I was doing an edit and I kept thinking, where's that coming from? Is there some weird little extra sound on another track? And I just soloed up the actual track from the Women and Children First record. And sure enough, it was in the audio from there. So it's something that would go by and you would never hear, but I ended up really focusing in on it and wondering why it was there and what it was, you know? So there was a little moment like that where we have similar things that happen from time to time in the episodes, but that is the first one that came to mind when you asked about 